Before COVID hit, one teeny tiny 2.8 square kilometre area drove 9.4% of Australia's GDP. So we're talking, you know, around $140 billion of national GDP being generated from this tiny little place we call the Central Business District. This is an economic powerhouse that was a key part of what was driving our nation. So that is why we should care. And we need to care from a human-centred perspective, but there is this really big economic imperative around why the CBD is so important and why we had to sort of engage in that conversation. Welcome to The Neon Grid. I'm your host, Michael Rodriguez. Like CBDs across the world, COVID has posed some fundamental challenges for Sydney. Fearless debate and creative ideation between major stakeholders through forums like the CBD Summits has helped to support businesses over the last two years. Many of the initiatives have also shaped the future of our city for the better. Think our fresco dining, cycleways and the use of technology in venue, to name a few. But as we shift gears into a post-pandemic mindset, what do Sydney ciders actually want from their city? And what are the barriers in the way of them experiencing that? Rather than leave it to guesswork, our office commissioned some independent research to answer those questions by consulting over 3,000 Sydney ciders. We asked Ernst Young to be forensic in their analysis and forthright in their recommendations. There are a lot of angles to this. Changes in working habits, new transport patterns, rapidly shifting consumer preferences, cost of living pressures, and of course, rents. The built environment has plenty to do with the last of these, but also makes such an impact on the experience we have of our neighbourhoods and the city we love. So joining me around the water cooler today, so to speak, is City's expert, Selena Short. Boss of real estate and construction for EY, she oversaw the research report entitled Flicking the Switch, which was published late April. Google EY Flicking the Switch and you will find it. In this podcast, we'll draw on Selena's expertise, EY's global perspective, tease out some of the findings of the report. I hope you find it useful. Welcome, Selena Short, to the Neon Grid podcast. Excited. Thanks for having me. You are many things, but according to this well-written research document in front of me, you are the EY's Oceana's built environment and resources market segment leader. There's more besides, but like, what is that? And I suppose like by way of introduction a bit, like this concept of cities and cities expertise and so forth, I had no idea about until I found myself in the business of trying to get cities going again. So you've been drawn in and and I guess one of the experts really in Sydney at least on cities, but how did you get into that? How did I get into cities? I'd say it's from being a human who is definitely more of a city file than a country, regional kind of person. But in terms of the broader role, what does market segment leader mean for the built environment and resources? The day job is really broad. At EY, we've kind of brought together these mega segments of sectors that we think have things in common and a lot of things that aren't in common. So I look after real estate and construction, power and utilities, oil and gas, mining and metals. Um, and so we brought together all of these capital intensive physical asset businesses don't ask me any questions on mining and metals. It's not my bag, but the team sort of look after that and we sort of that rolls up to me on the exec in terms of looking at that portfolio from EY's point of view. And interestingly, there's actually quite a bit of crossover between a construction site and a mining site. So there's really good stuff that we can learn from that kind of confluence and convergence of industries. But my background is in real estate and construction. And so for me, really more so on the real estate side than the construction side. And a lot of the work that I've done has been around offices traditionally as a real estate asset class. 
And so I've always, though, been very focused whenever we're talking about the built environment, which I think is incredible, but very much the human-centred part of the built environment, which meant that, you know, if you wind back sort of six, seven years ago, you usually used to being like the crazy person in the room when you're talking to people in real estate saying, but what about the humans or what about the customer? And there'd always be these questions like, who do you mean the customer, the shareholders? No, no, the person that comes to your building. And then you fast forward now and that's changed, you know, fairly significantly. So I've always been a complete city lover. And I think the last two years has just taught us so much about cities and the appetite for people to want to engage constructively around that has just shifted, which has been yeah, pretty cool. I wonder whether our paths would have crossed if there wasn't a, a pandemic. Good question. Because we came into contact when I met you after uh, you'd done some research work for the Property Council. Yes. Which explored, I guess, what you would think about a city in the post-pandemic age. Do you want to kind of just outline a little bit about that and then uh, and and then explain how we came to work together on a report that you recently launched? Yeah, look, it, it is a really interesting question. Like, would we have met? And I would automatically go, yeah, of course we would have. But actually, would we have? Because the real estate sector was so focused on the asset, so the building and the environment. And for sure, before COVID, the sector was starting to think about customer and customer journeys and user experience. And those things were starting to emerge but they're kind of like a bonus and nice to have and the fluffy stuff that you put around the, the real work, which was the building and your yields and your cap rates and all that stuff that's really important to make an asset work. When COVID came, one of the things that initiated that work where you and I came into contact was a discussion with the property council and a number of the players to say, hey, I know we all wish we could turn that clock back and it was 2019 again and we'd never heard of this thing called COVID but that is not going to happen and we've got to embrace the change and we've got to actually think differently. If you're an owner of a whole lot of assets and offices and shopping centres, your life got fundamentally blown up. And so it was this really interesting point in time to say, let's not focus on what have we got to do to take it back to 2019. Let's accept that genie's out of the bottle let's think about how we could make this better, what's got to change, what's got to be different. And that was the genesis of that report, which was how, you know, you and I met. And it's been really interesting in how much the sector has taken a lot of really good thinking and work that was already being done, sometimes a little bit on the periphery, and just that really coming into sort of the mainstream of how those companies are thinking about what the future has to look like. Mm. And I guess like the other side and from our perspective or, my, or the work that I've done over the years and, and now in government, has been really uh, human-centred in the mm. sense of I almost don't care about the built environment in a sense. It's, to me, it's all about human and, and do they? what's the barrier to them going out essentially. And so I guess most recently in a report entitled Flicking the Switch, Research and Insights to Help Sydney CBD Turn the Lights on in a New Era, uh, or Turn on a New Era, uh, um, we asked you to sort of think about this in a bit more detail around if you, with, with CBDs, CBD Sydney in particular, traditionally being an area where people go to work and then potentially go out afterwards. What happens if you take away the first part of that? If you're not long, no longer going to work, why would you come back into the city? And so, and I, and I guess for many of us, uh, we, we've all been kind of uh, really focused on the CBDs. And it's not just a Sydney discussion, it's a global discussion, but maybe you can outline why CBDs are important, in particular Sydney CBD matters. 
Yeah, look, it really does matter and there's been much conversation and debate about this. But if you just look at it from a simple, like, why do we care so much about this? If you take, you know, Sydney as the example, before COVID hit, you know, one teeny tiny 2.8 square kilometre area drove 9.4% of Australia's GDP. So we're talking, you know, around $140 billion of national GDP being generated from this tiny little place we call the Central Business District. That's really, really significant. And we can have all of these sort of big overarching conversations, but this is an economic powerhouse that was a key part of what was driving our nation. So that is why we should care. And we need to care from a human-centred perspective, but there is this really big economic imperative around why the CBD is so important and why we had to sort of engage in that conversation. And and as you sort of allude to, it's this isn't a Sydney thing either. It is global. It is a phenomenon that, you know, every city around the world is facing into, but they're all a little different as well. And that's why I think that Flicking the Switch report has been super interesting because we've gone out and talk to or listen to 3,000 different Sydney siders to get their views around what we need to do to restart this, you know, economic engine, but how we do that in a really different way, how we take on board what people want and think about that strategically. And for our perspective, and I think we share this, there was quite a period of, I, I described it as a dartboard and people just throwing things at it going, what about this, what about that over the course of the pandemic, which is understandable both in industry and in government as we wrestled with this major upheaval. Uh, but now that the pandemic is uh, well, closer to the end than the beginning, let's just work with that assumption, <laughs> fingers crossed. But we recently had had you speak at a, a an event, CBD's Revitalisation Summit, and I could hear the room collectively uh, draw air when you threw up a slide which talked about uh, global trends really around return or re-engagement with activities. And um, there was, I, I think I'm right in summarising most things, kind of return to games, NBA games, for example, the US, mm-hmm. uh, F&B uh, are kind of trending back towards 80, 90 odd percent, but there was one bit that was a notable, yep. a notable, and what was that? It was people returning to the office. So the slide you're alluding to was looking at New York and, you know, you can't, you know, you close your eyes and say, think of quintessential global city and, you know, four out of five people would probably say New York if you did a quick straw poll. And that was that those, that data point was on New York. So kind of everything's back except offices, as you say, NBA games, you know, public transport, restaurants. Um, but offices are around sort of circa 40%, whereas everything else is back at that sort of 90% mark and you kind of go, hmm, this is interesting. And so for me, it really does symbolise that view that we've dislocated that I come to the CBD Monday to Friday, nine to five. That nexus has been fundamentally broken and that is a big shift from how our cities have operated. Now, Again, if you look at Sydney by comparison, the latest stats to come out of the Property Council, we're at about the 40% mark. And I think given some of the the timings of Omicron and all those other fun things, I think we're going to see it lift beyond 40 and get quite a bit beyond 40 in Sydney. And I think we've got different dynamics to somewhere like in New York. But I do think expecting it to go back to 2019 and have people work Monday to Friday, and we, and we know that to be true from the research, both that CBD 
report we did for the Property Council, which talked about how you create not central business districts, but central experience districts. And from the work we've done for Investment New South Wales on flicking the switch, we know it's changed. So if you look at what people are telling us, and we're talking, we've surveyed 3,000 people, we've run focus groups, we've spoken to all these big thinkers around the globe. What we've been told is that 70% of CBD workers want flexible working as the norm. 3.3 days was the average preference to come into the office when you sort of average it out. And really interestingly, um, like that was great, that was all our research and it confirms a lot of what we're seeing, feeling, hearing. But the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development just a couple of weeks ago released findings from a work from home study they'd done and that was 32,000 people in 25 countries and they asked the flip question on that 3.3 days in the office stat that we have been talking about and their results said 1.7 was the amount of days people wanted to work at home. So this perfect flip mirror image stat, you know when it comes, it's like those Freakonomics moments when you're kind of like, oh my gosh, like did they read our report and just, you know, but anyway, it was it was pretty cool just to sort of see the flip of that stat. So we know, we know that people have bought into this hybrid work concept. Also in that same report that they put out, you know, two to three days a week working at home is equivalent to people of a 5% pay rise. And 15% of employees said they would quit their job if they were asked to return to the office full time. When you break that down for Australia, it was 22% second highest after the UK. (laughs) So that genie is not going back into the bottle Monday to Friday, nine to five, back in the office. It's just not. You know, you just look at, like we talk about bit about sort of how we've got to flatten the working week curve. We've flattened the COVID curve. Now it's the working week curve because we've let it kind of flow organically. And we know Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is where it's at. Thursday's the new Friday. Monday's dead. Friday's dead. If you're trying to sell coffees at the bottom of a building, what do you do? Does that even work as a business model? So I think people have accepted that it's not going to go back to Monday to Friday, nine to five, but they're still trying to figure out what is the sustainable business model? How do we actually make this work practically, I think is a, is a big part of what people are sort of grappling with at the moment. Um And I think it's just trying to work out how we lift it probably a bit above sort of the 40% mark and get it more to maybe awards a 60 to 70%, Mm. but not taking it back to what it was. Yeah. Well, as I say, it's the point of this discussion, the report, all the work that you're doing, a lot of the work that I'm doing is to kind of create an environment where you can have a debate and then Mm. trial test ideas. Should we talk a little bit about uh, uh, the great work from home experiment? And I guess like we're we're talking in the pregame about the currently with you know restrictions. I guess easing they've eased, but just the return of other aspects of life, which have been closed off as busy oh, parents yeah. with kids and schools activities on weekends and family yep. commitments. There's there's an element of the work from home uh, uh, routine that we've all embraced now, but in terms of the discussions around uh, productivity, is one uh, companies attracting talent and retaining it. You know, like what, what what's your view or, or insights really around? Can can it work from home in the way that we'd like to think it it, it can, or is that a bit of a furphy? Uh, look, I think it served us so well. Like, holy moly! Like, if we'd had to get through the last two years, ten years ago, even five years ago, like it would have just been a total all-out disaster. 
you know, from from the experience, if I look at it from a why, like our productivity during those those lockdown periods was incredibly high. Like, and we measure our productivity very effectively, so we're able to actually get a very good read on that and compare it to the same period in the prior year. So, but that is. A really important consideration is what we're talking about, short-term productivity. Am I cranking out more hours, cranking out more emails? And the answer to that is in a lot of cases, yeah, that mm. ticked along fine. The interesting bit is when you start to consider some of the the longer-term impacts of that. And it's really interesting. My, Microsoft's um, work trends index showed that looking at how we're all interacting in this new world, we are operating in clearer silos and in much smaller networks. So as we've experienced, like our worlds have shrunk. You speak to the people you need to speak to to get the job done, but we're missing all of that incidental stuff. And we know humans are hardwired to connect. And there's a whole bunch of super interesting stuff that tells us that if we lose that human face-to-face, we will see productivity suffer. And we know that, you know, if you look at a statistic like a stat like engagement, like it is the main metric that organisations use to say, how much do people like working here? How likely are they to stay? And we know that product that engagement links very closely to sort of productivity, mental wellbeing. If I'm engaged, all these good things happen. And interestingly, we know that you know, you take, for example, Gallup has been doing work for a long period of time around engagement and all people, but especially women, if you take women as an example, they are twice um, as likely to be engaged if they cite having a close friend at work. And I'm not saying you can't make friends virtually, but it's really hard to get connected to people in a culture if you've never stepped foot into the office or you've never met those folks face-to-face. And EY did this EY Empathy and Business Survey, which came out in 2021, and 37% of employees said they'd left an organisation because they felt they couldn't connect with their colleagues. So it's harder to measure and grapple with, but we intuitively know it, that if there is this face-to-face contact, if we have that human centricity, we get all of this innovation, we get ideas, we feel more connected. And really interestingly, I saw a stat the other week saying, you know, 84% of people land their next job through a casual contact. So how does all of that work? And I think we're seeing the effects of that two-year adrenaline charged, working from home. Yes, we can get through the short term, but I think we're now starting to see a lack of sort of mentorship, um, coaching, all of those things that have sort of fallen by the wayside. And interestingly, People are wanting to come back, but they want to come back for that really good stuff. They don't want to come back and sit in the office and just smash out seven hours of work and not talk to another human or not run into anyone that's you know creates those moments of spark or enjoyment. That can be done at home. But mm-hmm. when we come into the office, let's make it worth the commute and worth getting out of our slippers for. In terms of then, I guess we spend a bit of time, you, you know, identifying like where importance of CBDs, where you know there are there is a material change. Let's just accept that as as and so the question then you know moves very quickly on to the 
well, what are you going to do about it? And yep. I would like to think, Selena, given that you have such an entrepreneurial <laughs> public servant in me, uh, helping with CBD's revitalization, that we do do better than that 40%. There we go. Plug for me. But uh, you, like, uh, I, I guess there's any number of, um, any, any number of um, strategies and points of view, really. And mm. I think that's uh, where, where rather than you, the, the old dartboard and everyone having a go, we, we, we asked for a bit of um, insight. Do you want to kind of outline a few um, key, key um, either findings or like views, anecdotes, like around what are the practical things one can do around CBD revitalization? There'd be a couple of things that I'd call out and like one that I know is close to your heart, Mike, and you spoke about it last week, which is do we have the right voices at the table? And when we look at the data from the report, I want to say push on the open door. So who want, who is who is going to be the easiest people that we can get to re-engage with the CBD? Who want to be there? Who have a reason to be there? They are young folk, probably aging myself by calling them <laughs> young folk. The, the young people. The young people. Um, I like to think that I can still roll with that from time to time. But the young folk, people who work in the CBD and those who are within a closer commuting distance. Now, that's not to say that we just focus on that group to the exclusion of others at all, but let's push on some open doors. And you particularly raised the point about, you know, young voices, like where are they at the decision-making table as we come up with these strategies and how much of the CBD is designed with those users in mind, yet they're the ones in this survey that are saying, yeah, I'm keen. I love the city. I want to come back. How are we making it a place that makes it easy for them to come back? And that links to one of the one of the really obvious um, things for that cohort, which again comes through really strongly in the report, is it's too expensive. Mm. So there's some things I think we could do around getting the right voices to the table, designing the offering to m- meet the needs of that cohort and leaning on some of the issues which we know are st- it's a sticking point. CBDs are a special occasion place. They're really expensive. How do we break that down? How do we think about it differently if we know that's the problem? So we've got this problem. We've got a group saying, I want to come. That seems like a really obvious place to start. Is there CBDs elsewhere, either around the country or around the world, that uh, in you know EY's experience or yours personally, that you are seeing are doing a good job of this a this discussion b in the intentionality required by government and industry to you know like really rethink it or yep. are we kind of on our pat malone look i think look i think most most cities are leaning into this in some way shape or form i actually think there is work to be done to connect that piece up and you see this playing out and we can maybe touch on this in a sec but within our own city, this whole running down your own lanes concept. But that's also happening globally. Every city is trying to solve for pretty much the same problem. They've all got their little nuances and differences and tweaks, but I think there needs to be a lot more learnings happening at a global level and taking the good the good and the interesting. And I think there's work to be done for us as the Sydney CBD. I think we're actually doing a pretty bloody good job mainly because we got back to it so much earlier than the other cities. But then we kept having these lockdowns after everyone else had left that well behind. So I think we had a really good head start, lost our way, not lost our way, but then kind of, you know, just got taken back to the start line a couple of times. 
But I do think there would be power in elevating the story of Sydney because I think we've done some really cool stuff, but also learning from other cities as well. And I do think one interesting observation from just some of the other city folk I'm speaking to around the world is the residential component, and that's always a controversial topic, but we don't have a high residential component in the Sydney CBD versus other cities. And often when you go to those cities that you think are super cool cities like Paris, Berlin, um, you know, they've got a lot of people that live in the city as well. So there's less of that dependency just on the office worker. So I think that's a consideration for us. Do we want to be a city that actually encourages more residential? Um, there's, a, there's some really big picture questions which are not easy solves, but I think we need to lean into as we kind of consider what something different could look like on the other side of this as well. But I think your point is a good one because I think I don't think there's enough of that happening at the moment. Mm. Yeah, and I and I I guess them as well. Like I don't know if anyone's um, else has gone and and tried to do a benchmarking exercise, which is kind of really what this is. Mm. It's a, and you, you know, I guess like the, the purpose of it, particularly because of the high level of investment from government in reactivating or reimagining mm. the CBD, is to kind of hope that we're doing it from a sense of data as opposed to yes. speculation over a period of time. In terms of um the uh, um, we, we we did talk a little bit about the report and many of its findings. Did you have any a pet one that you were like, yeah, that or I um I there, there was one which what uh, was your pet? Well, what was your was that a little fluffy kitten uh, in there somewhere? Yeah, the, the one that I I, I um. I did think was uh, interesting was create a city camp program for school groups, encourage schools and community groups to undertake city camps for children from suburban and regional areas, both in New South Wales and interstate, get to experience city life, advocating and sharing these experiences with their friends and families. I thought that was kind of pretty, oh yeah, like, I don't know, you know, I feel like that that's a, that, that, that one I found was like, yeah, let, let's have a talk about that one. I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah, look, I've really liked that one as well. Maybe it's because you and I both got young kids yeah, and trying to look to get them off our hands at various points. I don't know. But it is those ideas, though, I think, around how you create attachment to the city. And I go back to your, you know, how we kicked off this podcast of like, hey, why are you so into cities? I'm like, because I remember as a little kid coming into the centre of Sydney, I remember going past, you know, the DJ's Christmas windows at Christmas and my grandma bringing me in on the bus from Collaroy where she lived and going to the food hall at David Jones. And I remember, you know, coming in with my, you know, with my mum and my dad for, you know, a special annual thing to the opera house. And so you've got these, you know, memories burned into your brain of like this aspirational place that is, you know, super, super cool. And so I think we need to be able to create that for our own kids. But it still goes back to what we found in this report, right, which was one of the standouts for me. It is a special occasion mm. place. And that's my experience of it as a child. When you start working in there, you're in there more and you kind of get more in the kind of the, the run of the mill, kind of you, how you use the CBD. But for me, that was one of the key takeaways of the report. How do we break the special occasion association? Don't get rid of it. Keep it because it's really important and it is cool and, you know, you've got Ben along and you've got these amazing restaurants and these, you know, world-class experiences. Like I'm not saying get rid of that, but how can you come in with your kids or bring in your ageing parents or whatever it might be and, you know, hit a noodle market and, and you know, we've seen some of that activation in the rocks, but how do you make it inclusive and accessible and somewhere that you think, hey, what should we do? Like Saturday night, what should we do? Oh, should we just go into the city? 
you're just going to the city. Like that is the level of thought that's required and you put your kids and you jump, you get your kids and you jump on the train and maybe you pick up your mum on the way and you've literally got three generations on the train rolling into the city without a huge, there's nothing on at the opera house. You're not going anywhere near the opera house, but you're going in there for, because you know you'll have fun. It's not going to break the bank. You'll have a good time. And I think that's that for me is is the key takeaway. How do we make it more accessible, more inclusive? All against one of the most spectacular backdrops on the planet. Absolutely. As we know. All right, uh, Selena, we've been going for a while. There is a few things, but I've been speaking about pre- pro- uh, rents and other things on other podcasts. So you know, we'll we'll leave that one for for another time. But <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I agree with you. We do need. Let's just quickly go there. We do need to look at the rental model around the CBD and look at how you create free, cheap rental options for creatives, thinkers. Like we know that creates interesting, exciting, delightful, and then you get more rent on the floors above. So it's a bit of a no-brainer for me. I just think we just need to work through the models. Yeah, and and I think coming off the the forum we did the other day, I think that there is this idea of, okay, we've got – We've identified the problem. We've got some insights into solutions, but in terms of like, let's go find some specific examples of where we can, you know, create impact and showcase success. I think is probably where, where at least my head is. And you know, happily, there's a few um, landlords who are, you know, I think like-minded in 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 that, and you know, connecting them with the creative community and so on. And all these types of concepts we understand, but it's execution ultimately, isn't it, that we want to see uh, and practical examples that you, you know, I guess we hopefully look to redefine the market. Is there anything else you want to throw in? Like we covered it or? Oh, look there, look, I could, as you know, I could talk for days and I think you want to probably get out of here at some point. But the two for me that we probably haven't touched on, um, one is this whole concept of the micro district, which goes back to this whole, everyone I think is coming at this with gusto and heaps of enthusiasm, lots of ideas around what we could do around the CBD. But one of my observations is, people are sort of running down their own lanes, but they're all running to the same place. Mm. And I think there would be so much power if those run lanes kind of all serpentined around each other. And so also with New South Wales government, we've got this concept going around how do we build a micro district? And you've done a great job and been involved, I know, with you know YCK, which is a phenomenal example of that. But how do we create a brand and something distinct and bring together all the important people and businesses that galvanise around this really small little area and go, let's work together. Mm. What are you bringing to the table? And we talked about in the panel last week, like practical, like what are you going to bring? And so we're talking about that around Wynyard Park. So how do you have someone like, you know, a Brookfield who owns some of the really spectacular assets around that park? How do you bring the big employers who are trying to get their people back to work around that park? How do you work with the F&B providers? How do you work with the small businesses and the retail and how do you think about what could this place be? And then bring in local government and state government and actually all work together. So that for me is really critical. We showed that the power of collaboration through COVID. We've now all gotten busy getting back to our own thing. We can't lose that Mm. collaboration magic. And I think if we can collaborate around, like start small on these little micro districts, I think there's a heap in that that we could do. And EY is also working on the Wynyard one to write this micro district playbook, which hopefully should be out in the not too distant future. So we're not repeating stuff again in a variation of a theme. It's getting some, you know, efficiencies and some economies of scale in that. So that that is a big one um, for me. The other key thing, which I just feel like I can't, 
you know, share views on anything without coming back to is also whilst COVID's been tough, yes, no one's going to argue with that. Like, holy moly, it is nothing with what we've got coming around mm. climate change. Yeah. And cities are massive contributors to our carbon emissions, um, you know, circa 40% built environments contribution to carbon emissions. So you just can't have conversations around what should the future of our cities be responsibly without also addressing this other problem. And so what I want to see, desperately, desperately want to see more of is co-benefits. So how do we solve for this current problem of let's get people back to the city and what does that look like along with how do we do that in a way that also makes our cities greener, Mm. more sustainable? Because if we're not trying to solve for both of those problems simultaneously, we are missing a massive trick. So looking for those co-benefits and we do a lot of work with MIT out of Boston and their uh, real estate innovation lab there. They've done amazing work on the benefit of trees and of yeah. green space. And we know from the report that we did that people told us they want it. <laughs> 43% green space is a deterrent. So if we know that actually people like coming into the city more if it's greener, and guess what? It's actually also really great for the planet. And the work that MIT's done has shown that it actually also increases asset values, both from a sale and a rental point of view. You're like, no brainer. Yet I don't see the city filled with trees. Yet if you if you sat down rationally and yeah. said to me, bam, 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 you'd be like, okay, let's put in a heap of trees. So there's there's some things I think we need to lean into. And that's the trees is just one mm-hmm. example, but we need to really lean into that. And if you read the IPCC report a couple of weeks ago, it's sobering. Like, yeah. We've got to. Is it a bit, and how fast? Like, you, you, you know, using that example, like it's uh, time is a ticking in, 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 in terms of the that. And, you know, greeting the city, genuinely greeting the city, I assume, well, can it be done? How quickly can it be done? Theoretically, anything can be done quickly. Like COVID showed us that mm. if something needs to happen and it needs to happen now, we can move mountains. Unfortunately, the challenge of this one is the, the slow burn and the politicisation of the topic has made it really, really challenging, which I think is a shame for our children, our grandchildren, um, and us, to be honest, it's, it's going to hit our lifetimes. Um, but I think with enough will, and I think what we saw during COVID, and my big fear was that everyone would go, oh my God, forget climate change because this is, you know, all consuming. That wasn't what happened. We actually saw people double down and we saw particularly the corporates make really big net zero commitments. And so I feel like we've actually got momentum now. And again, the New South Wales government has been really, um, has really moved things forward and, you know, hugely commendable in the policies and the way things have moved forward from a New South Wales point of view. Great examples in SA around the renewables. So we're starting to see some of this come to life. But I do think around the city's agenda, I think there is more that we can do to weave some of this Mm. into the solutions that we're working on now around the revitalisation piece. Oh, well, we'll look forward to having that discussion with you as we go about our work. Our paths cross in a serpentine manner often. So thanks for joining me on the Neon Grid podcast. Thanks, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Neon Grid podcast. I hope you enjoyed that episode. To get involved with our efforts to reimagine Sydney's 24-hour economy, sign up to the Neon Grid newsletter. You'll find that on the Investment New South Wales website, which is at investment.nsw.gov.au or hit the link in the show notes. 
You can also follow me, your host, Michael Rodriguez, on LinkedIn. And as always, Carpe Noctum. Noctum.